Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it up with me to the book of John. And we're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at the introduction to this great book. I'm beginning a new series through the Gospel of John called Come and See, based on John 1, 39. I preached through the Gospel of John, believe it or not, it was 15 years ago, and so I felt led now to to go back and study this book again. One of the things I love about the Gospel of John is that it is so simple, even a new believer can read it for the first time and understand much of what he is saying, and yet it is deep enough that even the most mature Christian can read it and they will learn something new every single time. Well, scholars generally agree that John's gospel was the last of the four written. Its author, John, was the only apostle who did not die a martyr's death, but when he was an old man, he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and there he wrote the book of Revelation. He's also the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But if you read the first three gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will notice that they are very similar to one another, although they do slightly differ in the way they approach telling the story of Jesus. But you will also find that John's gospel is distinct. John wrote his gospel after Matthew, Mark, and Luke in order to emphasize the supernatural side of Jesus. And so without the gospel of John, our understanding of Jesus would be completely different. We're going to look at just the introduction to John's gospel this morning in these opening verses. And when I read this introduction, I'm reminded of a man by the name of James Irwin. Now, James Irwin was an astronaut for NASA, and he's best known Not for being an alumnus of my alma mater, Stanford University. No, he's best known uh, for being the pilot for Apollo 15. He was the eighth man to ever walk upon the moon. He's that man in that famous photograph where you see the astronaut on the moon saluting the flag of the United States. What's interesting, James Irwin was actually not even a Christian when he landed on the moon. But he would say later on, it was that experience of walking on the moon that had such a big impact upon his life that that led him to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And years later, this man, James Irwin, made this following statement. He said... God decided he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to the blue planet. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we can relate to God. As I travel around, I tell people the answer is Jesus Christ. I want you to notice this next part and remember who is saying it. That Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. I love that statement. I'm sure it was an amazing thing to be able to walk on the moon and see the earth at a distance. But Mr. Irwin understood that as amazing as that is, that does not compare to what happened 2,000 years ago when God became man and walked upon the earth. 
And that is the miracle that we see in these opening verses of John's gospel. But according to John, if you want to understand Jesus, you have to go all the way back, not 2,000 years ago, but to eternity past, before time began, to the very beginning, and there in the beginning was Jesus. Now, there are three things about Jesus that we need to know to understand who Jesus was, who he is, why he came to this earth. Three basic truths we're going to see in this passage from John's gospel. First of all, we see the identity of Jesus, the identity of Jesus. These opening verses of John 1 are, I believe, some of the most important verses in all of the Bible to understand who Jesus is is look at verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god notice those words in verse 1 in the beginning even a person reading through the Bible for the first time, even a new student of the scriptures will read this verse and be able to see exactly what John is doing. He is quoting, he's going back to the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis says, in the beginning, And as we read through John, it'll be very clear, abundantly clear, that when John says the word, that is like a nickname for Jesus. Jesus is the word. He is the living word. So John is telling us there are some things that are true about Jesus, and there are some things that have always been true about Jesus that we need to understand. First of all, we see that he is eternally God. He is eternally God. In the beginning means you can go as far back in time as you can count or as man can imagine, and Jesus was already there. He wasn't just from the beginning. He was, no, in the beginning. In fact, that verb in that statement is in the imperfect tense. You know what that means? That means that in the beginning, Jesus was continuing to be God. He did not become God. He was already God. Before there was a universe, before there was a sun, moon, or stars, there was Jesus. That's why he could say, before Abraham was, I am. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an ending. He is eternally God. We also see that Jesus is equally God. Look at that next statement. The word was with God and then in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Notice it says Jesus was God and he was with God. You say, well, how do we explain that? I believe there is only one explanation for that, and that is the Trinity, that there's one God and three persons. John writes this statement to emphasize that Jesus is a separate person from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and yet he is the one and the same God. And as God the Son, Jesus has been eternally 
equal with God the Father. He's been eternally equal with God the Spirit. That word with, he was with God that we see two times. It can mean towards. That word carries the idea of being face to face with someone. Now, it's hard for our finite minds to really get a hold of this, but Jesus as God the Son enjoyed perfect intimacy with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for all of eternity past. There are a lot of things, folks, that I don't fully understand. I don't fully understand electricity, but I am glad somebody thought to turn the lights on before we got here today. And I don't claim to fully understand the Trinity, but I believe it and I preach it because the Bible clearly teaches it. Now, there are some people who object to this, and there are some people who claim, oh, but you're worshiping three gods. They say, don't you realize one plus one plus one equals three. Well, their math is correct, but their equation is wrong. Because when we're thinking about the, the Trinity, it's not one plus one plus one equals three. It is one times one times one equals one. We worship one God who's manifested himself in three separate but equal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this doctrine of the Trinity, it is so important and it is so prominent in the Bible. Did you know that we really see evidence for it in the very first verse of the Bible that I referred to a moment ago? Genesis 1.1, that's right. In the beginning, God, and the Hebrew word for God, the most basic word for God is simply the word El. But did you know that that's not the word Moses used for God? In the very first verse of the Bible, he used the word, not El, but Elohim. He making it plural, which means it would normally translate gods. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. But you know what he did next? The verb created, it's singular. In the beginning, one God created the heavens and the earth. And so he's Elohim, and yet he's one God. Now, how can that be? Again, I believe that the Trinity is the only explanation for that. Jesus is eternally God. He's equally God, but we also see that he is essentially God. In his very essence, he is God. Look at that last statement in verse 1. And the Word was God. Could he make it any more plain? The most simple statement in all of Scripture about the deity of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it literally says, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word, making it abundantly clear that it's the one and the same God that Jesus, that, that John is referring to. You know, some of you may know we have neighbors, maybe for some of you friends or family members who are Jehovah Witnesses who take issue with what I am preaching. They have a problem with this verse, and so in their translation, and I almost hesitate to call it that, but they actually change John 1.1 to say something very different. In their version, it says, and the word was a God. How many of you understand what a dangerous thing it can be to add even one 
word or even one letter to the word of God. One letter can change everything. There are two problems with saying that the word Jesus was a God. First of all, there are thousands of manuscripts for the Gospel of John that exist. You won't find one of them that even remotely implies that Jesus was a separate God or a lesser God. But there's another problem. If Jesus is another God, he is no God because there's only one God and every other God is a false God. That's the problem. Well, Jesus was in his very essence God. And that's why John calls him the Word. Words are vehicles of communication. If I want you to know who I am, I will probably use words. If I want you to know what I think, I'll use words. If I want you to know what I want, I will use words. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, God was communicating to us who he is and what he thinks and what he wants. And that is why Jesus could say, I am the Father. The Father and I are one. That's why he could say to Philip in John 14, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And if you want to know what God thinks, listen to what Jesus says. If you want to know what God would do, look at what Jesus did. Jesus is eternally, equally, essentially God. We see the identity of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He also shares with us about the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus. He's going to mention two particular parts of Jesus' work. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He starts off with Jesus' work in creation. All things were made through him. He makes it so clear. And if all things were made through him, that means Jesus was not a created being. He is the creator. Again, there are some people who take issue with this, and there are some people who will argue and say, no, what this really means is that Jesus was the first creation of God, and then Jesus created everything else. Well, it sounds to me like John actually knew somebody might say that. Because notice what he says next. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus created everything. And if Jesus created everything, he was not a created being. Again, some people will argue and say, well, no, this simply means that Jesus created those things that are visible, those things that we can see, and those things that we can touch. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible. Everybody say those three words with me. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Jesus is the glue that holds this whole universe together. Did you know that? From the farthest galaxy to the smallest atom, Jesus maintains it. He keeps it going. And by the way, if Jesus can maintain this whole universe, you realize that means he's also capable to sustain and maintain your life this morning, no matter what you are going through. Astronomers tell us that there are 10 octillion stars in the universe. You know how many that is, 10 octillion? It's the number 10 with 27 zeros after it. 10 octillion stars, according to Scripture, Jesus created every single one of them. In Isaiah 40, it says he gives everyone a name. Well, this is why we get to the end of the book. We get to the book of Revelation, and it says in Revelation 4.11, For you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So we see in Jesus his work in creation, but we also see his work in redemption. John's going to mention his work in redemption. And because John is talking about Jesus as the Word, there's another statement he makes about the Word in verse 14. Skip down to John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's so much more in this passage that I would love to talk about, and we will get to in the weeks to come. But for now, just notice that opening statement in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came and dwelt among us. You know what that Greek verb is, to dwell? It's actually the word tabernacle. Now, I realize in English, tabernacle is not a verb. That doesn't work in English, but it worked in the Greek. It literally says that Jesus tabernacled with us. Now, why would he use that word in that way? Well, perhaps because in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is where the people of God would come to encounter the living God. At the tabernacle, sacrifices were made so that the people could come and approach him. Jesus tabernacled among us so that through him we could know God. Through his sacrifice, we could be saved. But think about these words. The word became flesh. He didn't become merely the appearance of flesh. No, the Word, Jesus, became real, actual human flesh. He had a real body with real hands and real feet and real fingers and real toes. Had a real nose and real hair. The Bible says he was real human flesh. And 1 John, when he wrote this very opening words of that book, he said of Jesus, that which we've heard, that which we've seen, that which we have touched. In other words, he was so real, you could see him and hear him, and you could actually touch him. Because he was real, guess what? He got tired. He got sleepy. 
He got thirsty. He got hungry. Yes, John is saying, try as best as you can to understand just what a great thought this is. That the same word which was in the beginning, the word that was with God and was God, the same word that created everything that exists, this word, Jesus, became flesh. That means the baby in Bethlehem's manger really was the God of Genesis 1. That's right. Now, please understand when the Word became flesh, that didn't make Jesus half God and half man. Now, that means He was fully God and fully man. And let me tell you why this is important. I realize I'm giving you a lot of theology this morning and maybe a little less application that I would normally give you, but maybe you're wondering, okay, why is this so important? Listen to this. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born, say those last three words with me, under the law. Jesus was born under the law. The reason why the Word became flesh is so that Jesus, as a man, could live under the law and take our place. The Word became flesh so that Jesus could live the life for us that we should have lived. So that He could then die the death that we should have died when our sin was placed upon Him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin or was made sin. Think about that. The Word became flesh so that Jesus, having been made flesh, could be made sin for us. He became our sin so that God's wrath towards our sin and the punishment for our sin would be poured out on Jesus and not on us. That's why it matters. That's why it's so important that, yes, the Word became flesh. It means that even though we have failed over and over and over again at the test of life, Jesus came and he took that test for us. And he passed it with a perfect score, with flying colors. And because Jesus came and passed the test and was perfectly obedient to the Father through faith in him, we have victory in Jesus as well. You know, you may be familiar with a story of a certain soldier named Bo Bergdahl. Uh, he spent five years as a captive of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Now, he became a captive because he went AWOL, but that didn't stop his father, Bob Bergdahl, from doing everything he possibly could in order to rescue his son. You know what Bob did when he found out that his son was being held captive? He dedicated his whole life to his son's release. And he began to learn and study the culture and all of the traditions of that particular place where his son was being held. He spent four hours a day just learning about the region and its history. He learned the Pashto language so that he could personally speak to his son's captors. He learned how to dress 
exactly the way they dress. And he learned how to live exactly the way they live. And he did all of that in order to save his son. Now, that's pretty impressive, right? As impressive as that is, that's not near as impressive as what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when the Word became flesh. He didn't just resemble us. No, He became one of us so that He could take our place and save us. And so the God who was invisible became visible. The God who was unknowable became knowable. The God who was unreachable became reachable. And that's why we can know Him and serve Him and worship Him and love Him and enjoy Him every day and forevermore because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see the identity of Jesus. We see the work of Jesus. But John also refers to the mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. If there are two words that I could use to describe what is wrong with this world today, those words would be death and darkness. So much death. This world is so spiritually dead and it's so dark. In verses four and five, Jesus came to solve both of those problems. He came, first of all, to bring life to the dead to bring life to the dead look at the first part of verse 4 in him was life who needs life the dead need life well who are the dead in this case Ephesians 2 1 says and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins that was us Man in his natural state is spiritually dead. That means he's cut off from God and he's separated from God by his sin. That means he is bound for hell and on his own. He's got no way to help himself. He's got no way to save himself. So Jesus, the word, became flesh and he brought with him what dead people need. What do dead people need? They need life. And so in him was life. He came to bring eternal life. John 3, 16 says that those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He came to bring abundant life. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that you may have life and life more abundantly. He came to bring life to the dead and he came to bring light to the darkness. Verse 4 says, and the life was the light of men. You know, it's bad enough for man to be spiritually dead, but there's actually something worse than that. Not only is man spiritually dead, but he is unaware of his spiritually dead condition. I heard a story about a farmer who decided that one day he was going to show his little boy what life on the farm was really like, how they really did things. And that night they were having chicken for dinner, so... You can imagine he took the sun out, picked a chicken, cut its head off right there in front of the little boy, and he'd never seen this before, and he watches as that headless chicken just runs around like crazy for a while. And the little boy looked at that, and then he looked up at his dad and said, Dad, look, that chicken is dead, and he doesn't even know it. 
Ladies and gentlemen, spiritually speaking, this world is full of people who are dead and don't even know it because they're in the dark. And when it's dark, you can't see. You can't see where you are. You can't see where you are going. And spiritually speaking, this world is full of darkness. Without the light of Jesus Christ, man just wanders. He wanders through life in the darkness. It's so dark, he can't see where he is. He can't see where he is going. He can't tell what is true or false or what is right or wrong, what is good or bad, because it's so dark he can't see what is his meaning in life what is the purpose of his life it's just darkness but when Jesus comes into the picture all of a sudden there is light glorious light Ephesians 5 8 says it this way for you were once Darkness, I love the way he says this, not just in darkness, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, light is a common theme in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see this again and again, so I'll talk more later about what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world and what it means for us to also be the light of the world. But for now, we just need to know it is because of Jesus it's all because of Jesus. We don't have to live in darkness anymore. Look at verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let me just point out to you quickly that verb tense in verse 5. John said, and the light shone in darkness. Is that what he said? No. And the light what? shines in the darkness. You realize when John wrote these words, Jesus had already died on the cross. He'd already risen again. He'd already gone back up to be with the Father in heaven. And yet he said the light shines in the darkness because the light of Jesus is still shining. And for 2,000 years, the world and the devil have tried everything they can to try to put out the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ, but they can't. Because light always penetrates darkness. And so if we see darkness around us, or if it seems like the darkness around us is increasing, the solution for us, church, is not to complain about the darkness. We need to ask ourselves if we are being the light of the world that God has called us to be. I don't know what you're going through this morning. Maybe your life just lacks that life. Maybe your world seems so absolutely dark. All the darkness in the world cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're spiritually dead and you're in the dark, Jesus calls you, come to Jesus. Call upon him. Trust him. Follow him. Receive him. Confess him as Lord of your life today, and he will bring light and life into your life today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you inspired John to pen these words almost 2,000 years ago. 
And Father, what a wonderful, glorious thing. Something that inspires us, it excites us, but we can't fully grasp it. Just how great a thing it was that Jesus, who was the Word for all of eternity past, that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us so that He could one day take our place, die in our place on the cross. And it took nothing less than the death of the perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God to pay the price for our sin. God, we thank you that you loved us so much. You were willing to send Jesus to pay that price for us. Thank you, God. Thank you. And as we observe the Lord's Supper in a moment, we do so so that we will be reminded of the price that had to be paid, the body of Jesus that was broken, and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Help us to observe the Lord's Supper in a manner that is worthy, even though we can't be worthy. Help us to examine ourselves as your word tells us we should. And if there's any unconfessed sin in our lives that we just need to surrender to you right now and confess any areas of our lives that we need to surrender afresh and anew, God, would you reveal that to us even now? And God, I pray for the man or woman or the young person who's here today who right now, according to your word, they are spiritually dead and they are spiritually darkness. And they desperately need the life and the light of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for that person. I pray that even now they would see their own sin, how great it is before you, a holy God, that there's nothing that they could do on their own to make up for what they've done. There's nothing any of us can do. But that's why you sent Jesus, that he came died for us, and rose again so that in him we can have life and light. God, I pray that today would be their day of salvation, that even now they would call upon the name of the Lord and that they would be saved. God, have your way. And I pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.